Elena Halushka is a board member of the Ukrainian NGO Anti-Corruption Action Center and co-founder of the International Center for Ukrainian Victory. She has also worked as a chief of international advocacy at the post-Maidan coalition of 80 CSOs, Reanimation Package of Reforms, from 2015 to 2017. Elena was an advisor to members of the Ukrainian parliament from 2012 to 2014 and has experience in local level politics, serving as Kiev city council member and deputy chair of the council's commission on housing and energy 2014 to 2015. Elena is a contributor to the Atlantic Council and Kiev Post. She also has written op-eds for the Washington Post, the Foreign Policy and the EU Observer. Elena Halushka attained her PhD in International Economics from the Kiev National University in 2016. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. If you enjoy the materials we create and, of course, our fantastic speakers, then do please like and subscribe as that will help other people to discover them as well. And if you like the work we do, do please consider becoming a patron. Elena, it's a huge pleasure and a great privilege to welcome you to the channel. Thank you very much. My pleasure as well. Well, we're going to touch on a lot of topics, some of them more sort of immediate concerns. But also, I want to go back to, I think, the source of the history unfolding that we're seeing, which, of course, is the uh, Revolution of Dignity, Euromaidan, as it was originally called. And of course, prior to that, the Orange Revolution. But we'll, we'll park those incredible topics for a minute. And let's talk a little bit about what's going on at the moment, because what we see is extraordinary terrorism uh, being unleashed by Russia against Ukrainian civilians, against Ukrainian infrastructure, residential blocks, hospitals, energy systems, etc. cetera. Uh, and more recently, we see the attack on the Kharkovka Dam. So why is there such reluctance to label Russia as a terrorist state and indeed treat it as that pariah which we should be doing? Uh, so with regards to the designation of Russia as state sponsor of terrorism, that is a very uh, timely and urgent question, which I and my colleagues have been asking almost daily over the last 16 months, because indeed, you know, this is not an ordinary war. Russians are using terrorism as their weapon, because for them, as they are losing on the battlefield, it is much easier to be fighting against babies, mothers, heating and bombing residential areas, uh, hospitals, schools, and kindergartens. Why uh, Western countries haven't taken all of the steps necessary to designate them state sponsor of terrorism? That's a very big question. And this particularly regards the United States because European countries, uh, mostly their parliaments, and the European Parliament, they uh, recognized Russia state sponsor of terrorism. That was very important statement, but unfortunately that was only political statement because they do not have uh, effective tools uh, to designate and then, you know, impose additional designation related sanctions and steps. This instrument, uh, is the tool which uh, the United States have been using for decades already, but they haven't applied it yet. Why? 
From my perspective, uh, that regards the confiscation of Russian assets, because in case if the U.S. designates the state uh, as a state sponsor of terrorism, they may start confiscating their assets, which are usually uh, protected by the sovereign immunity rights uh, in the courts. Um, obviously, Ukraine would want very much such designation to be made and this confiscation to start, because uh, as of today, the according to different estimates, the losses uh, of the Russian aggression um, vary uh, in between $400 billion and $700 billion. Uh, that's a whole lot of money. And the war still goes on. And the Kahovka Dam, which was um, uh, blew up uh, by Russians, uh, it will add uh, additional damages, which were not calculated yet there. And it's very important to make sure that Russia pays, because Russia is the aggressor. And uh, lack of this step of designating uh, from my perspective, might be considered as the, um, you know, U.S. potentially treating this money as the leverage over Russia or even part of the future negotiations process. And one thing that I, I struggle to understand in my mind is clearly these terror tactics by Russia, they see them as strategic. But at some point, they make no sense from a strategic point of view. And it seems to me to veer into sheer envy, into sheer uh, spitefulness. Um, so, for instance, when they attacked Kiev and you had those terrible massacres in Irpin and Butcher, one could say that, well, maybe this is a terror tactic. Maybe they thought that they could create a division between the Ukrainian people and its government uh, and win that way. When they attacked the energy systems, they thought that that could be strategic and they could win that way. But many of their acts of terrorism seem to have no real strategic basis. So how do you understand that as someone um, who is there really, you know, on the front line, observing all of this stuff going on and with, you know, clearly a very strong knowledge of Russia and its past behaviors? Uh, well, Russia is getting prepared to play for a long. And uh, in the long-term perspective, uh, they are counting on the West stopping um, consider these attacks um, very seriously, simply because from the human psychology, you cannot follow uh, each and every day uh, this, you know, terror attacks, uh, killings, uh, murders uh, and uh, you know feel this sympathy feel this compassion continue um, you know increasing sanctions continue increasing um, weapons supplies uh, and obviously you know Ukrainians who are going through that every day uh, it's getting uh, very complicated for them to continue coping so as we see that Ukrainians stand that Ukrainians are very firm still that we can win this war. You know, the, 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 in the public opinion polls, you are seeing that 
90 plus percent of Ukrainians are still very much convinced that Ukrainians are capable of winning this war. What we need is Western military assistance and sanctions. But I assume that uh, what Russia is calculating, that you cannot be living in this uh, horror for, let's say, five years, seven years, 10 years. And that is exactly the range of planning uh, which Russia is applying. Because in this very war, time is playing against Ukraine. Because uh, uh, we rely very much uh, in our assistance, uh, in getting the assistance from Western countries. And Western countries are democracies. They very much um, count, take into account what uh, their societies say. And if the societies are not seeing this horrible news uh, for media, because they are having many other uh, issues coming uh, on their agenda, we still do not know what will be the next winter. You know, many people think that the worst winter is already behind us. Um, unfortunately, I'm not that optimistic because uh, previous last winter was very mild. Plus, we had... Um, uh, very good stocks uh, of the um, spare parts to repair our energy system, which we accumulated uh, during the previous, let's say, 10 years. Right now, the stocks are empty. Plus, Russians made a so-called false start. So they started attacking our energy system uh, early October when it was relatively warm. And by the moment when uh, the real cold winter arrived, they already didn't have enough missiles to be able to attack us, you know, on a daily basis like they did from the very beginning. Plus, of course, our international partners mobilized and they were sending us this power transformers, generators and all of the necessary things. So we do not know what will be the next winter. We do not know whether the next winter won't be cold not only for Ukraine, but also for Europe and what will be the energy bills of the European countries. And that is why we are advocating that harsh for the let's call it a sustainable source of assistance for Ukraine, because as grateful as we are to Western taxpayers for all of the assistance which we are receiving, which is necessary for our survival, we cannot um, make our existential self-defense fight, uh, you know, conditional on, the, on, on somebody's energy bills and whether the elections are coming in, in one country or not. That's why we think that it's very important to move forward with the confiscation of Russian assets, sovereign assets, state assets, but also uh, private assets of the oligarchs, particularly because we need to have this pot of money from which we would be able to receive all of the necessary assistance and not a little bit of assistance here, a little bit of assistance there. And we are advocating for the fighter jets and hearing that the budget is very short and you should prioritize what is more needed on the battlefield right now. So let's probably focus on the ammunition, uh, 
infantry fighting vehicles, tanks, because that's something which can help in the counteroffensive already today. And fighter jets, they are too expensive. Let's think about them later. So it's very important that the Russian assets are confiscated, that they can be used already today to ensure that Ukraine can uh, sufficiently defend ourselves from the Russian aggression. And then if there is money left, uh, they should be channeled for the post-victory reconstruction of Ukraine. And obviously, uh, after the victory, Russia should also pay uh, the reparations. And what you say there, I think, raises an interesting parallel in Russian propaganda itself. And this is one of the reasons why you know this channel was actually created, and that was to shine a light on Russian propaganda messages and to try and infer what their strategic purpose is from that messaging. And right now, there's been an extraordinary twist or turn in the Russian propaganda message. Uh, and that is to say, Ukraine is 100% dependent on Western weapons. They don't make anything themselves. And all they produce is bread, blah, blah, blah. Clearly, they're trying to drive doubts amongst Western partners that Ukraine is worth defending. And of course, I'd like you to address that point because Ukraine has an extraordinary tech sector which is growing rapidly. Ukraine was at the forefront of technological development within the Soviet Union. And yet this Russian propaganda narrative seems to try to leverage the old racist trope that Ukraine is simply, a, you know, a, a sort of comical peasant version of Russia. I mean, it's an extraordinary blatant lie worthy of Goebbels. But do you think this sort of twist to the propaganda narrative really ties in with this understanding, as you said, of the pressures on the Ukrainian budget and some of the dependency on Western partners? Well, I think that, you know, Russia has been trying to depict Ukraine as the failed state and as the kind of the Western colony for basically as long as I have been personally working on Ukrainian reforms, meaning that right after the revolution of dignity. And they also use this narrative, you know, that the revolution of dignity was orchestrated, masterminded by somebody, you know, uh, I don't know, in DC, in Brussels, Berlin, wherever. So that's their absolutely used and absolutely common tactics, which is of course uh, has nothing to do with the reality. Because the revolution of dignity was the will and desire and the spirit of Ukrainian people. And absolutely the same regards uh, Ukrainian army and our fighting that, uh, yes, right now, uh, of course, um, the supplies of the Western weapons are very important for us. But uh, the West will never, um, you know, substitute what is our main and key and absolutely invaluable asset, which is our people, their bravery and their readiness to stand uh, against Ukraine and defend our land, whether we are receiving this assistance or we aren't receiving the, the, the uh, assistance, uh, because this is an existential fight for us. Uh, with regards to whether we produce something or do not produce, well, I'm not sure whether this is, you know, the, the right thing, uh, even for Ukrainian military to advertise that, uh, obviously, from the security perspectives. 
but what i can absolutely reassure that ukraine will be standing will be fighting uh, whether with assistance or without assistance, it is just the matter of the price uh, which our people would be um, paying. And that's why we very much appreciate everything that we received from our partners, particularly because that helps us to save the lives and health of our people. And of course, Russia is very good at projecting. It projects its own weakness. It projects its own failing, its own crimes, and then accuses others of, of doing the same. And I can't help but think that some of this Russian propaganda, you know, suggesting that Ukraine will be dependent on Western capital forever, you know, even after the uh, the victory, um, that clearly is sort of ludicrous. Because I think, you know, in my point of view, the, the, the Ukrainian economy is going to be a powerhouse. It's going to be a key part of, uh, um, you know, the Western wealth generating machine. Um, Russia likely will be a burden on the world economy. Um, and when it collapses, it will need considerable assistance uh, to stop it descending into chaos. Um, but these propaganda messages, somehow they still seem to get through. And this week we saw a delegation uh, from the African continent um, and we see peace deals being suggested by China and so on. And fundamentally, all these proposals fail to recognize that Putin does not adhere to legal agreements, does not adhere to rule of law, uh, things written on pieces of paper. Um, his code seems to be far closer to a kind of mafia agreements made in blood. Uh, and if you break them, then there's a kind of omerta um, stuff. Um, why do Western leaders or not Western, why do leaders generally still seem to fail to understand what Putin is as an entity and why it's impossible to come to a stable agreement with him? Uh, that's a very good question. I would probably split it in two parts. The first one, whether Ukraine, you know, our economy uh, can uh, bloom and develop and uh, whether we will be burdened or not. Uh, obviously, we are not burdened. And by the beginning of the full-scale uh, invasion, um, Ukrainian economy was growing. Ukrainian economy was growing even during the COVID times when most of, of, of the economies were declining or the uh, pace of growth significantly reduced. Uh, but what is critically important for us is the access to the seas. And that's why Russia uh, tried, you know, to, to occupy the south of, well, occupied uh, parts of the south. Uh, of Ukraine and that's why they targeted so much Odessa and that's why they still you know hope that at a certain point they would be able to capture Odessa because most of our experts were transported uh, through the sea and we are seeing right now this with the grain that um, railways or roads uh, I mean, like vehicles, uh, exports, um, th th that's the bottleneck. And we cannot, you know, sustain uh, this effectively for, for, for our businesses to not be loss-making. So for us, it is incredibly important to return all of the Ukraine, of course, 
uh, uh, and start, you know, with the um, with those uh, towns that are uh, at the seaside, because it's our um, economic um, source that's uh, basically, you know, the foundation for our uh, future economic growth. Uh, and with regards to why leaders do not understand Putin, well, for me personally, there was a very big uh, question why Western leaders were trying to continue talks, dialogues, negotiations with Putin when he amassed his uh, 100,000 troops at the Ukrainian borders, threatening to start full-scale invasion, and instead of sending us weapons and if anything a little bit more of stingers and javelins uh, before the beginning of the big war or impose the sanctions or stop Nord Stream 2, which we were demanding, you know, from, from the very beginning of the building and construction of that project. Instead, they hoped that it is possible to make a deal with him and try to convince him um, you know, not to uh, move forward with a full-scale war. That is actually the logic which many Western partners trying to apply to Russia after the invasion of Georgia, after uh, invasion of Ukraine, a huge, absolutely um, inhuman uh, war crimes Russians committed in Syria, uh, and Western partners thought that if uh, they try to tie Russia to the West economically, it would be very, um, uh, you know, loss making and risky for Russia to move forward with something uh, very aggressive, even more aggressive than the previous acts of aggression. And that would basically deter them from future wars. This logic absolutely completely failed. Some realized that, some still do not. Uh, but I think that what Russia is right now trying to do, they are trying to um, engage uh, as many um, different countries uh, in the so-called peace peacemaking, peace dealing processes to make sure that there is not that there are not only those countries that are supporting Ukraine, who is the victim of this aggression, but that there are many countries who think that, you know, this both side the season that, well, maybe Ukraine provoked Russia. Um, maybe if Ukraine, you know, um, um, didn't want to join NATO, then Russia wouldn't be threatened. Uh, by that and all of the other, you know, uh, propaganda uh, bullshit, which Russians are trying to push. Uh, so, you know, they are trying to blur the line between the truth and the lie uh, by engaging as many different actors who do not really have the experience uh, or uh, who do not uh, realize what are the foundations of this war, that this is imperialistic war, but imperialistic war of Russia against Ukraine and not the West against Russia, as Russia is trying to portray that. Uh, and with regards to, to the uh, African countries, for example, well, Russia is very clearly 
blackmailing them with a grain deal, you know, that they won't allow Ukrainian uh, vessels with, with Ukrainian grain uh, to move through the Black Sea. And therefore, this might create the uh, famines uh, in many of the African countries. So, dear African uh, partners, if you want, uh, you know, to have enough food, uh, go ahead and try to push Ukraine into surrendering. So that is also one of the ways how Russia is, um, you know, um, abusing uh, vulnerabilities uh, of other countries in trying to use them for, for their own purposes. And, and suddenly something you said there, which I hadn't really thought of before. I mean, clearly, when Russia invaded the Donbass territory, it seemed clear to me at the time that, that Russia was trying to turn Ukraine into a failed state, was trying to ensure that it couldn't physically join the EU and NATO. And we'll, we'll come to NATO in a minute, because I think EU and NATO accession are incredibly important for Ukraine's future stability. But that idea was fairly clear that, you know, create an, a forever war on the territory of Ukraine and it won't be able to join these international organizations. That partly has failed as Ukraine has become ever closely more integrated in the world economy um, and, uh, you know, rule of law societies and the frameworks that exist around those. But this whole idea of Novorossiya and taking control of the entire coastline and even all the way through to Moldova, and I think it's quite uh, apparent that Russia was keen on turning Moldova into a puppet state as well, and I'd always thought of that as in a purely sort of imperialistic Zed patriot kind of lens. But also, from what you said, controlling the entire southern coast would make the Ukrainian economy unviable. And, and that literally would turn Ukraine into a form of uh, partially failed state. So I can see that that was a strategic intent. And it makes it so important that Ukraine managed to prevent that from happening. Absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, many people say, um, know that Russia occupied Crimea because of the uh, Black Sea Fleet. You know, then there are very many, uh, this propaganda myths that Crimea was always Russian, uh, then it, you know, um, uh, somehow accidentally uh, was given to Ukraine and Russia returned it, uh, which is obviously not truth at all. Uh, but Crimea is very important strategically because uh, Crimea is about controlling the Black Sea and about controlling the Sea of Azov. So, uh, and as you very rightly mentioned, that Russia tried to uh, occupy the southern part of Ukraine from the very beginning of this war, back in 2014, but this completely failed also because uh, there was very strong anti-Russian uh, sentiment and resistance locally, uh, including in Kherson, in Mykolaiv, in Odessa. Uh, so uh, in the beginning of the war, they managed to occupy uh, Donetsk uh, and Luhansk and parts of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. But they never gave up on this idea. They realized that back in 2014, they didn't have the uh, sufficient military capacity for the full-scale invasion. So basically, that is exactly, you know, um, the plan which they are trying to push today. So they 
tried to occupy it. They captured and grabbed whatever they could. Then, you know, they took a time out from very active fighting because the war continued um, uh, between 2014 and 22 constantly. Russia was constantly violating ceasefire. They were constantly killing Ukrainians. But still, they took this time out, you know, to um, uh, collect more weapons, uh, train more uh, soldiers, troops, and started full-scale invasion, grabbed more land. And now they are demanding uh, for, um, well, they are hoping for a kind of a temporary freezing to make sure that they can uh, root in the occupied territories. By that, I mean, obviously, you know, destroy, find and destroy all of the uh, resistance people, um, you know, brainwash their kids. If you take a look what they are doing in Mariupol, they are preparing soldiers from these kids, which, you know, in, in, in the next uh, iteration of this hot war would be killing, uh, you know, uh, us. And, uh, and this is being done very, very systematically. And this is being done very, you know, this is a targeted uh, activity. And that's what we are trying, you know, to explain to the world that we had Minsk deal when Russians promised to do a long list of things, you know, starting from ceasefire, which they never, ever did. They tried to use Minsk uh, agreements, Minsk deals to undermine Ukrainian state from inside, you know, to um, prevent our democratic uh, transformation and, uh, and uh, our reforms when they realize that this is not working and they are having enough of the weaponry, uh, enough of the people, enough of the ammunition, then they restarted their war and, you know, expanded it to the full scale uh, aggression. And, you know, we can be speaking about uh, Russian wars against Chechen Republic of Ichkeria um, in 1990s. But many may think that, you know, that was long time ago. Many may forget about it, which is, from my perspective, absolutely wrong, because this is the pattern which Russians have been systematically using over decades, and they are trying to apply this pattern today for their war against Ukraine. And so many, you know, are, are, are hoping or are pretending to hope that, yes, this time Russia will act with integrity. This time they will obviously adhere to the uh, to, to, to what they are uh, signing on paper, which is not even worse of the price of, of this uh, sheet of paper. And this time it's going to be absolutely different. Why should this be different? The sanctions against Russia, despite the fact that they are indeed um, comprehensive sanctions, but they are not enough because sanctions are cannot be stable. The economy uh, is, is adjusting. Russia is finding new tools and new ways and new channels to circumvent these sanctions. And if you, you know, apply uh, sanctions and say that, hey, 
a year ago we uh, introduced them that should be fine i mean most of them would already be uh, you know not efficient at all if russia is getting the military assistance from other dictators and you know these routes are not closed they are not properly and effectively sanctioned and other countries understand that they are not punished for helping russia to circumvent sanctions then why would they stop doing this so you know with all those pillars in place including with the confiscation of assets if russia knows that they stop um, active fighting and then as the part of the negotiations they might get let's say I don't know half of this assets uh, three-fourths of this assets then why what is the incentive for them to give up on their imperial ambitions if there is no effective outside motives for them to be doing this and of course uh, western leaders still make the mistake of projecting their values, their interpretation of the world onto Russia as well. And, you know, how many articles have we read um, that look forward to some kind of level, liberal, liberal revolution in Russia that, that try to interpret, you know, the actions and the thinking of Russian people uh, as if they were a Western democracy with all of those traditions and centuries uh, of change that have contributed to that. Um and that, of course, is a fool's path. And I think something you mentioned a minute ago uh, also shines a light on, on this misinterpretation of what's going on. A key part of Russian propaganda is to say that Ukraine is deeply corrupt, was always deeply corrupt, was much more corrupt than Russia. Um, and of course, it's true that in the 90s, there was a huge corruption problem. Uh, and indeed, the revolution of dignity was actually all about starting that process of change and rooting corruption out, which takes a long time. Uh, but it's extraordinarily hypocritical because one, Russia is a singularly most corrupt, I think, country in the world, far more corrupt than Ukraine and has no process whatsoever in train to, to tackle that corruption. But I think another misunderstanding, and I love your view on this because I know you're, you're very closely involved with government um, around the time of the revolution of dignity and corruption goes to the heart of that process. Russia is accusing Ukraine of being corrupt, and it labels it as a purely nationalist phenomenon, you know, Ukrainian national phenomenon. But actually, Russia has used corruption to exert its influence. Russia has used corruption to try and turn Ukraine into a failed state um, and, and, you know, to, to, to create the conditions for the very propaganda that it espouses. So, yeah, I'd love I'd love to talk for a bit about that process of the revolution of dignity and actually the operation of corruption actually as a strategic weapon by the Russian state. Um, yes, the revolution of dignity was the turning point in the Ukrainian society because that was the moment when uh, corruption of the previous uh, president Yanukovych uh, basically peaked. I mean, he... Um, almost built authoritarian state in Ukraine. He put his people, um, we call them, well, Ukrainians called them family because that was almost like a family business. His people were everywhere. They were on all of the 
uh, money flows in all of the um, state-owned enterprises, you know, in they controlled law enforcement, judiciary. Well, they basically captured our state. And uh, this is not the way, uh, you know, Ukrainians um, are operating because we are a democracy-loving nation. And uh, for us, I mean, Ukraine is a real democracy because you um, never know who will win the next elections. And before the a year or two before uh, elections, it is absolutely unclear who will be the next president, what might be the composition of the parliament. And there was a very big surprise, you know, um, a year before uh, 2019 elections. Uh, nobody could uh, predict that Zelensky, Zelensky would be the president and that his party would have uh, the so-called mono-majority. Um, so for us, it was absolutely clear that um, moving towards any authoritarianism is an absolutely no-go for the Ukrainian society. But the last uh, drop in the ocean was that uh, the government of Yanukovych rejected to sign the association agreement. And despite the fact that the association agreement is actually a very technical document, it's about, you know, the um, bringing Ukrainian legislation in line with the European. It's about introduction of the European standards, let's say, in um, energy sector and time monopoly, uh, it's about um, economic reforms, but for Ukrainians, that was, you know, a symbol. Uh, for us, European Union and European uh, values were a kind of a lighthouse, you know. And when Ukrainians went to the streets, it was absolutely clear that um, we cannot, I mean, the country won't return to business as usual before. And since 2014, Ukraine has changed dramatically. And many people, many journalists, many international decision makers I'm talking to, and they always, you know, like asking whether Ukraine is corrupt or, or not. Um, you know, if we take a look at the particular moment in history as of today, well, of course, Ukraine still has some outstanding issues to fix. And as an anti-corruption activist, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely honest with you because uh, when you um, recognize the problem, uh, when there is the diagnosis, then there, there is the cure. Um, and uh, we understand that we still have to fix judicial reform. Yes, that's the, the key outstanding issue from my perspective. But I urge everybody to assess Ukraine and fight against corruption and corruption in dynamics. Because if you compare to what is today, uh, let's say with 2010 or 2013, these are absolutely two different Ukraines. I mean, we have built the, the system, the new structures for accountability of high, for high-profile corruption. This is NABU, SAPO, and High Anti-Corruption Court. And by the way, all of these institutions Putin mentioned in his speech two days before the beginning of the big war, when, when he um, de facto 
declared uh, the full-scale invasion. And he attacked them very hard. That see, Ukraine built plenty of institutions, but it is still utterly corrupt. So very much this, you know, Russian propaganda uh, uh, about Ukraine being a failed state, uh, which, which you mentioned too. Then, you know, we built a very unprecedented system of transparency, even much more advanced than European states have. We have this Prozoro electronic procurement system. Uh, we have electronic asset declaration system where all of the public officials have to report their incomes and assets. Right now it is uh, closed because of the wartime, but we are seeking the, the tools and instruments how to bring it back because it is very important. The security situation today changed with the one that was at the beginning of the big war. So from our perspective with certain security precautions, measures uh, in place, it is doable to restore it. Um, public registries were online. This were of vehicles, real estate, companies, even of beneficial owners, making, you know, uh, this as an absolutely magic wand uh, of, for the investigative journalists or, or the civil society. And you are absolutely right that for decades, Russia has been abusing corruption in Ukraine as our vulnerability through which they were uh, trying to, to influence Ukraine. So they were abusing non-reformed law enforcement and judiciary. They were abusing, you know, the, uh, the fact that uh, our privatization failed and oligarchs appeared and many of them had ties uh, to Russia. Uh, they were abusing, you know, this uh, secrecy which we had before the revolution of dignity to be able to uh, basically, you know, do business here and and, uh, milk Ukrainian economy and make money here as well. And for them, our reforms was um, the moment when Ukraine was irreversibly turning away from Russia and getting much more stronger and getting much more resilient towards any possible further Russians attempts to influence us. So they realized that they cannot control Ukraine anymore as they had during the 90s and the beginning of uh, 2000s. And, you know, Putin realized that this is He's probably now or never moment because as years passed, Ukraine is getting more and more uh, strong, even despite the facts that parts of our territory like Crimea and parts of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast were occupied uh, by Russia. So even that did not prevent us from, from real democratic transformation. And that was what scared Russian uh, uh, imperialistic ambitions and that's one of the reasons from my perspective why they decided to move forward with a full-scale invasion it's twofold isn't it first of all as ukraine advances gets stronger develops its own military industrial complex etc uh, and becomes more integrated with europe it will become proportionally more expensive and even impossible for Russia to reincorporate it into its imperial vision. But there's another threat, isn't there? And I wonder, um, you know, how important you think this is. If Ukrainians are emerging from a 
Soviet mindset, if they're able to tackle corruption and reform their society, it provides a template for how other states can do that. Is that also an existential threat to Putin's vertical system within Russia itself, having a successful democratic, pluralistic, uh, pluralistic Ukraine on its border? To be honest, before the beginning of the full-scale war, I I was also thinking that uh, democratic, strong, resilient Ukraine is the threat to uh, Putin's regime because it might show Russian people that you can live decently if you want. Uh, but right now, I do not think so. Uh, it is the threat for Putin's imperialistic ambitions in other countries, that's for sure. And here, uh, you know, that uh, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, in different moments of history were competing whose reforms are more advanced than some countries like Georgia, unfortunately, rolled back. But for for for. At, for our countries, obviously, this is very important because we are absolutely, our societies are absolutely uh, European uh, oriented and um, we understand that these European values are important. But for the Russian society, unfortunately, I do not think that this is uh, an issue anymore. Why? Because... Uh, this war shows that this is not Putin's war, as many would want it to be. This is the war of Russian society against Ukraine. And if so many Russians are ready to endure absolutely inhuman living conditions at home, like, you know, lives with without in-house toilets or uh, other very basic and important needs. But at the same time, they are celebrating that they are going to Ukraine, raping our women, killing our kids, looting our homes and houses. These people do not want democracy. These people want others to be living much worse than they are living. And from that perspective, I think that uh, Russian society is very much aligned with Putin on that. Mm. So the revolution, you know, it sparked a huge uh, wave of activism. It almost woke up millions of Ukrainians to the fact that you know, democracy is tough and it needs to be fought for. I'm hoping that it will also awaken uh, people in the West to understand that as well. Um, so you think it's more of a threat that actually the Ukrainian revolutions provide a template um, for revolution for other states that Russia would seek to subjugate. Uh, so those in Central Asia, Georgia, etc. It's much more of a threat to Russia's greater empire or periphery. Um, and I also like to ask you about you know, the personal process of activation, because a revolution isn't just some big process in society. It's a process, isn't it, where individuals become politically active, where their perception of the world changes. And when you have tens of thousands of individuals going through that transformative process, that's, that's the power of that process. So I wonder if you think that that's, that's a, you know, a better interpretation. 
Um, yes, but what I would like to, you know, um, a little bit uh, kind of clarify here is that I wouldn't say that Ukrainian um, revolution could inspire other revolutions. And that's something which I've noticed very well in 2014, 2016, when I was uh, talking a lot to uh, some um, Belarus activists, you know, and I was asking them, like, did our Maidan inspired you to do something? And they said, like, absolutely no. I mean, in our society, there was an understanding that it's better to have stability, you know, and not some kind of revolutions because you do not know how they will end, etc., etc. So what could inspire other countries is successful democratic transformation. So because the revolution itself is not a guarantee that, that the country will succeed, because, you know, there might be revolution and then, you know, the, the uh, some reforms and then some rollbacks, and then in the end, you know, even, even worse than it was before. But for us, it was important that we paid very big price in that revolution, which was the heavenly hundred people, uh, heroes, um, people who died in the city center of Kyiv because they were killed and the others did not uh, flee from, from the square. But, but, you know, people were coming in and, you know, standing against this authoritarianism. So that was a very, very strong symbol because uh, in, in, um, because that was the message that Ukrainians won't surrender even if they kill us. And that's basically what uh, is also the case uh, in the war since 2014. And that is the price which we have been paying for this democratic transformation, um, basically from, from the beginning uh, of the Russian war. So, you know, all of these results and success stories that, hey, it's possible to fix judiciary, even, you know, when uh, when it was the so-called state inside the state, you know, when crooks were ruling it and there was absolutely no way to get justice, then you can fix the issue and the problem of oligarchs and make sure that new oligarchs are not appearing and we are starting, you know, from scratch, um, playing fair game, etc., etc. So those positive democratic transformations, from my perspective, can be something which can inspire the, the, the changes, the will of other people to also be fighting for their rights and for their country. And with regards to this individual um, uh, dimension that you said, um, yes, yes, the I mean, very many very bright freedom fighters which later either went to the front line uh, in 2014 or started engaging in the democracy building processes. Uh, they, you know, uh, reinvented themselves during the revolution of dignity. And what truly terrifies me is that we are losing them right now on the battlefield because 
logically they were the first one who went you know to with the arms while entire world was shouting that you are having three days and after the three days you know you're doomed to fail how you're going to live under russian occupation they said that no we are having our country and we will be standing for this country and many of them unfortunately already fell on the battlefield and many were wounded in action and lost limbs and you know they will also uh, need a very long rehabilitation and that's you know something which i'm trying to convey to all of the international partners who want to speak about reconstruction of ukraine that if you do not help us win this war fast, you would simply have nobody to be reconstructing Ukraine with because we are losing our political elites, current or future. We are losing our business, you know, talents. We are losing sportsmen, athletes, cultural um, uh, activists. We are losing the brightest elite of 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 our society, while Russia is, is losing prisoners and criminals whom they have, uh, you know, taken from the jail and sent straight to the front line. So this is absolutely in, incomparable, um, you know, what is the human dimension price of this war which our nation is paying. And the last question, I mean, that is an incredibly powerful statement, and it's a it's a tragic image you paint there as well. And I think people do not fully understand, uh, you know, that inequality uh, between the, uh, you know, the value to society of the people that Russia's losing and the value to world civilization, which uh, Ukraine is losing. Um, the last question really centers on the future. You've mentioned reconstruction. We've talked a lot about the checks and balances that were created uh, after uh, Euromaidan to try and create a far more democratic society. Um, that obviously is a generational change. And you mentioned the judiciary. I mean, it takes a whole generation to train up new people, to get those with the Soviet mindset out of the system. It's not an overnight change. So if we turn to the future, what is the importance of continuing to fight corruption? Because as the reconstruction effort takes hold, um, there's going to be vast funds, which of course are going to be targeted by criminals and those people with uh, you know, low moral intent. Um, so I think it's incredible you talk about sort of electronic systems. I wonder whether there's ways to prevent corruption, but also having Ukraine as part of a security, a wider security framework, which would be a member of NATO, a key member of NATO, and uh, embedded within the European Union. I mean, how important are these three things, anti-corruption and EU and NATO membership for Ukraine's future security and stability? It is absolutely instrumental. Moreover, I would say that this is the only way to make sure that even after Ukrainian victory, we prevent all possible future Russian wars against Ukraine. Why this is uh, instrumental? Because um, uh, anti-corruption and rule of law, that's part of our internal resilience. And we have to finalize the reforms that we started 
and we are right now on the right way. And at least I think that everything is absolutely clear with regards to what still needs to be done. And our experience is already learned and studied by other countries, like for example, Moldova. And uh, they definitely, we definitely have lessons learned to share with other countries, other emerging democracies. And this question of anti-corruption and reforms, it is very closely related to EU integration because all of the reforms that we managed to build, they were uh, built thanks to the um, tools and instruments like EU Visa Liberalization Action Plan, uh, or uh, IMF and European macrofinancial assistance programs conditionalities where money were linked to very specific and concrete st steps which Ukraine has to do um, with regards to the reforms. And NATO membership is the, it's a, basically it's a foundation. It's the security basis for anything in Ukraine. And uh, I, I don't like very much when uh, international partners try to um, divide, you know, reconstruction from NATO integration because they are absolutely intertwined. I mean, if you do not have the foundation of, of the NATO security umbrella, I have very big doubts that a lot of businesses would be willing to invest uh, in Ukraine, knowing that Russian missile may arrive in three, five years, destroy everything and kill their employees. I am very much skeptical that many Ukrainian families and refugees will return back to Ukraine, particularly those who have kids. And, you know, they have to plan their lives. On one hand, you know, staying in, let's say, uh, Poland, Germany, Belgium, uh, countries that are very open and welcoming to Ukrainian refugees and, and where they have already found the schools, kindergartens, uh, more or less job. And uh, basically, you are already part of the society for a year, two or three years or go to Ukraine and, uh, you know, wait whether Russia won't attack again. And without human capital, it would be very complicated, you know, to reconstruct Ukraine, to, to continue democratic transformation, running economy, et cetera, et cetera. So for us, NATO membership and the first step to NATO membership should be the invitation of Ukraine uh, to NATO at the Vilnius summit. It won't mean that the Article 5 will start, you know, the next day. And as, as it is very often portrayed that, hey, you're asking for the uh, invitation of Ukraine to NATO. You want NATO soldiers to be fighting um, against Russians. I mean, in, in between invitation uh, to NATO and uh, Article 5 application, there is very long procedure, which took even for Finland, which has almost 100% interoperability with NATO one year, and Sweden is still in the process of ratifications uh, from the NATO member states. So for Ukraine, this process obviously won't take one night because it is impossible, but this very first step 
invitation will send the signal to Putin that all of his imperialistic ambitions towards Ukraine, they are in vain. They make no sense because Ukraine already identified itself as the part of the European and Euro-Atlantic community. And European and Euro-Atlantic community accepted this. And this is just a matter of time when Ukraine will fully be integrated in EU and NATO. And I'm very frustrated to see that uh, NATO leaders are not ready to take this step because I remember very well that we were going through the same with EU candidate status last year. And right now with whoever I'm talking to, uh, on, on this issue, they are saying that this was a very smart move. This was the very right move. And it helped, you know, to trigger a, a number of anti-corruption reforms. I'm sure that if this invitation is given to Ukraine at the, at the Vilnius summit, you know, in a year, everybody will also be saying that, hey, it was so easy. It was so simple, but it had such a strong and powerful impact. And the very last thing, the, the best illustration, which I'm saying, you know, um, uh, do not underestimate the value which European and Euro integration has for Ukrainian internal resilience. Because in the first hours of the liberation of Kherson, I don't know if you remember, but there was Ukrainian flag and European flag in the downtown. And I'm sure that this European flag was not brought by the military. Somebody who spent 10 months in the occupation was saving and preserving this flag. And then when the moment came, they put it in the center, which means that this is very strong and Ukrainians want and deserve to be part uh, of this community. We need to have the, um, we need Western partners to be brave as Ukrainians and do not be afraid. I think that's a very important place to end on, that we need to stop being afraid of Russia. We need to stop listening to their nuclear terrorism, their threats and their lies. And I think I share your confidence that Ukraine will triumph. The only question is the speed of that triumph and the cost. And I think you very importantly highlighted some of the terrible losses uh, that this victory will be bought at. And even in this last week, we see examples of people who suffered in Kherson. We see examples of brave servicemen, as you say, from the very top of society, the most active uh, and smartest people uh, are not making it back. And I think one of the most heartbreaking images I saw this week was of the beautiful house of Polina Reika, which has been filmed now, uh, after the floodwaters have receded. And there's just the terrible destruction that Russia's actions have wrought. And so much will not return. Um, but, you know, I feel confident that Ukraine will will build back better, as the, as the, as the phrase goes, but also cultural heritage uh, will start to, to create new cultural artworks, which will replace those that have been tragically lost do you do you share that optimism absolutely we will absolutely build uh, ukraine which will be democratic strong resilient prosperous vibrant uh, because we owe this to the kids 
uh, of the fallen heroes, and I think that we cannot betray them. Well, Alina, thank you so much for uh, speaking to the channel. Uh, your passion, insights, uh, and knowledge of the situation are absolutely invaluable, and I know the audience will appreciate it. Thank you for everything you do, and Slava Ukraini. Thank you very much. Let's stay in touch.